Our panel seeks to draw attention to the history of the agrarian question in East Asia in ways which could speak to the reappearance of the agrarian question in the present day. Our papers differ from each other with respect to the particular sites within East Asia they examine, as well as their respective methodologies. But our common point of departure is that the complex set of problems that fall under the category of the agrarian question, those of the peasantry, land, food production, imperialism, and others, cannot simply be banished to the early history of capitalism as social forms that are inevitably swept away by the logic of capitalist development. And nor can the agrarian question simply be seen as a matter for the global south, and therefore of little strategic importance to socialists in locations such as the United States. The agrarian question constantly represents itself as a site of crisis and political possibility. In no context is this more true than our own, where the agrarian question has become bound up with the threat of looming climate disaster through the effects of global warming on the peasants of the world and the impending threat of new rounds of global dispossession against agrarian populations as competition over land becomes increasingly fierce. So too does the agrarian question pose itself in the United States, whereby agricultural and other rural communities have suffered the effects of sustained assaults from agribusiness, and yet in the absence of serious strategic mobilization from the left, have too often become fodder for right-wing populism in its various guises. For this reason, whilst we are here focused on histories of East Asia, we hope that the themes we address in these papers will nonetheless raise questions and challenges that expand beyond that context and will help us understand that the agrarian question is truly the question that never goes away. Thank you. And we should mention that we're going to each of us give our papers and then we'll open up to rounds of discussion, questions, debate. So I'm going to go first. Uh, my presentation being on the problem of the small producer and agrarian political economy in China in the 1930s. So my aim in this presentation is simple. I want to show that the legacy of the Chinese Revolution on the problems of agrarian political economy is worth recovering as part of the vibrant legacy of Chinese Marxism in the 20th century. The kind of theorists that I'll be looking at in the context of this paper were in many ways allied to the Chinese Communist Party under the leadership of Mao Zedong and others. But my interest here does not lie in Mao's own writings or indeed in the articulation of any kind of defense of Maoism as a political project. Instead, I want to simply show that discussions that took place in the 1930s in China on the terrain of the rural question counted for much more than the internalization and repetition of ready-made formulae from the commenter. Not only do these writings and debates represent an important dimension of Marxist theory in China, but they may, I submit, have yet something to teach us about the problem of the agrarian question as it exists today. The thinker that I want to introduce you today was a Chinese Marxist active over the long arc of the Chinese Revolution from the 1930s into the 1980s named uh, Xue Muqiao, who wrote extensively on the problem of the agrarian in the 1930s. He did so as part of a journal appropriately entitled Rural China, which also encompassed several other agrarian economists who would similarly go on to participate in debates under the conditions of actually existing socialism in the 1950s and beyond. The journal Rural China represents a focal point for indeed an intellectual community for the problem of the agrarian in China in the 20th century. A journal that over its duration played host not only to a series of sophisticated theoretical debates, but also published an astonishing range of investigations into the concrete conditions and social relations of rural life. These conditions being known in Chinese as Jiaocha and becoming one of the privileged political strategies for the mobilization of peasants and transformation of social relations as part of the political practice of the Chinese Revolution. The political rationale for this journal and the interventions conducted on its pages were many, reflecting the ways in which the problem of the rural and the peasantry emerged as a site of contestation in 1930s China, whereby many different political subjects contested with one another over the appropriate methodology through which to understand the ongoing crises of the rural. That the Chinese countryside was in crisis, manifested in widespread tenancy, the destruction of rural subsidiary industries, immiseration, falling prices for agricultural goods, all were in agreement. But different methodological understandings of this crisis yielded different kinds of solutions, ranging from improvements in the technical efficiency of agriculture under the nationalist state to the possibility of peasant revolution in conjunction with the overthrow of imperialism in China. It will come as no surprise to learn that uh, Xue Muqiao and the political economists associated with this journal of rural China favored a strategy of peasant revolution. And it is for this reason, as well as others, that their analysis may be read alongside the actual political strategy of the Chinese Communist Party. 
which was indeed one of peasant revolution. I'm going to be disclosing the nature of this analysis through Suez's work shortly, but I want to register that their attempts to lay claim to the countryside through a rich Marxist hermeneutic constituted an imminently anti-imperialist project. It was so because the other attempts to understand the rural crisis to which these Marxists were opposed were in many instances the work of Western academics located in China, Chinese universities, and employed by the nationalist government, and thereby constituted a form of colonial knowledge production. This included, for example, one John Lossing Buck, who displaced the political and social causes of China's agrarian crisis onto a Malthusian account of overpopulation. I doubt any of you will have heard of John Buck today, but you may perhaps have heard of his wife, one Pearl S. Buck, uh, whose novel The Good Earth was cited by her husband and shares with his work the fact of being, again, a mode of colonial knowledge production, which sought to depoliticize the centrality of political economy to the crisis of the Chinese rule. Of what, then, did the analysis of Xue Muqiao consist? In a word and by way of entry, he understood China in the 1930s as a semi-feudal, semi-colonial social formation. I anticipate that for many here, this term, particularly semi-feudal, will trigger instant caution. And indeed, much of the polemic introduced by Xue and others on the score was explicitly orientated against Trotskyists in China, who insisted that China was already capitalist, wholly capitalist, in its underlying logics of accumulation and class struggle. The notion of China as semi-fielder here rightly deserves caution in that this term recalls Stalin's own understanding of the task of the Chinese revolution as being to eliminate so-called feudal remnants. And this was a strategy that had justified an alliance between the Chinese Communist Party and the Nationalists and which ended with the butchering of Chinese communists in, the 19, in 1927. This is a, a well-known part of the early history of the Chinese revolution. So too, for many of us, may that term, semi-feudal, also signify a mechanical, stages mode of historical progression of the kind antithetical to any living creative Marxism. In actual fact, however, however much the term semi-feudal may give us reason for caution today, Schwer's use of this term has nothing to do with Stalinism, and rather marks an attempt to think through the problem of subsumption in the social and historical context, where capitalism was encountered in the form of imperialism, and where China experienced a global market in terms of a series of sharp disjunctures and modes of unevenness, both globally and within China. For Xue and others, their theorization of the rural was carried out under the shadow of Lenin's great theoretical office, the development of capitalism in Russia, in which Lenin famously argued that the development of capitalist social relations in the Russian countryside would result in a polarization, and indeed a destruction, of the peasantry as a class, including the parcelized ownership of land derived from the traditional mir, the Russian commune and the formation of rural capitalism. And in doing so, Lenin argued, the development of capitalism in the Russian countryside would give a spur towards an eventual proletarian revolution. In Xue's account, on the other hand, China's status as a semi-feudal social formation marked the ways in which this kind of transition, the advance of, cap of capitalism in the countryside, had been blocked because of Chinese incorporation into the world market on an imperial, imperialist basis. What this meant ultimately for Xue is that the very social relations and social forms characteristic of late feudal society, those that Lenin had expected to be destroyed under the ages of imperialism, uh, were constantly being reproduced and reproduced uh, under the ages of that very mode of imperialism, such that the, the concept of the semi-feudal here comes to mark a mode of uneven formal subsumption in which pre-capitalist social forms, especially the individual peasant farmer, take on a new significance within a colonial structure of exploitation and surplus extraction. At the same time, he argued, the natural self-sufficiency of the countryside was also being thoroughly broken through the forces of imperialism by the fact of peasants being compelled to produce for the world market and through the ways in which imports from modern industry, textiles for example, were destroying the basis of peasant handicrafts. Because for him this was a specifically colonial mode of subsumption, however, the figure of the small producer, the individual peasant farmer farming their parcel of, parcel of land, uh, either as a smallholder or as a tenant, would not simply go away through the formation of a rural proletariat in the way that Lenin had expected, but would, would rather be maintained and reproduced as the most useful form for colonial exploitation in the Chinese countryside. In his landmark article, therefore, entitled The Specific Character of the Rural Economy in the Colonies, Xue argued that the classical feudal form of agriculture is defined by the proliferation of landlord-tenant relationships that encompass varied forms of customary and violent extraction rather than being mediated wholly according to capitalist forms of contract and value exchange, 
And it is this feudal form that in colonies such as China, quote, is not only not broken by the colonial invaders, but is rather very often artificially cultivated and maintained under the ages of a semi-feudal social formation. One in which these individual peasant producers are linked to the world market and the metropole by relations of unequal exchange between agricultural and industrial goods, but where the development of rural capitalism and national industry are nonetheless blocked. So what Shriek gives us, I would argue, is therefore a picture of a countryside that has precisely not been simply and straightforwardly restructured along the lines of rural proletarians and rural capitalists, but instead where the small producer, the individual peasant farmer, represents an instance of what, in a more recent vocabulary, we would call an instance of formal subsumption. That is a sector of social life, indeed a social relation, that is already part of global capital and is made to function in the service of capital, but yet remains other than a capitalist relation of wage labour, because it's been drawn into capitalism from a previous mode of production. Shue's insights can therefore be productively linked to more recent interventions from scholars and activists such as Harry Haratunian, for whom the constant reproduction of sites of formal subsumption that is to say unevenness, is a necessary condition for capital accumulation. In other words, the semi-feudal Marxist share, not a temporary stage between feudalism and capitalism, but the specific permutation of capitalist unevenness in a colonized setting, of which the maintenance of a small peasant economy is the most visible sign. And I think it's worth underlining that empirically speaking, this remains true today. The small peasant remains a common social form throughout much of the world, one that has not simply been eliminated, even under the effects of things like IMF uh, structural adjustment programs. The reproduction of the small producer has here, it's, as its necessary supplement, the problem of surplus labor in the countryside, which Schreer argues is the, is the product of the destruction of rural handicrafts. In his article, Rural Subsidiary Industries and the Departure of Peasants from the Countryside, then, he recounts the fate of rural weaving as a result of the incorporation of China into the global market, arguing that, quote, the work of spinning has already been entirely swallowed up by large-scale machine industry, and cloth and the cloth weaving that is left has in large manner already shifted towards commodity production. So with cotton, so too, she notes, with other kinds of non-agricultural rural production. The destruction of rural industry, as Scher indicates in his essay on the fault of agriculture under capitalism, is by no means a feature of colonial agriculture alone, as the advanced capitalist countries have also exhibited the same phenomenon. And this is something which we recognize as being drawn from Marxist capital, where he also short, sort, talks about the way that the development of urban manufacture destroys the whole basis of rural handicrafts in places like England. However, whereas in advanced capitalist countries, there exists the possibility of a process of industrial accumulation taking, taking hold of the new surplus labor of the countryside as its reserve army, it is precisely this condition that is absent in semi-colonial countries, where the destruction of rural industry and the maintenance of small peasant production exists as part of a total condition of underdevelopment, in which the effective development of urban industry is also prohibited by the forces of global finance capital and the weakness of the national bourgeoisie. In Shre's own words then, quote, in China, with respect to the bankrupting of rural handicrafts, the speed of this process is faster than that of the development of new industries in the cities. Therefore, the surplus population in the countryside cannot find an adequate route of escape. They have no choice but to settle over a long period in this congested countryside where they do their utmost to seek out a living on their small farms. And it was this very question of uh, how to deal with this massive accumulation of surplus labor that would really be one of the major problems for the Chinese Revolution and how it, how it itself tried to restructure the rule. Uh, Han will tell you much. Han researches this in, in, in many different ways. Um, the, surplus, uh, the surplus labor force in the countryside, therefore, for sure, exists as a colonial surplus, one that exists as a necessary consequence of a social formation that systematically extracts surplus value from the Chinese countryside in ways that do not and cannot contribute towards a process of national development. For him and others, the crisis-ridden character of the Chinese countryside was therefore symptomatic of a larger condition of colonial development, one that anticipates further advances and ideas such as dependency theory in the 60s, but which for him, writing in China of the 30s, could only be overcome through a revolutionary process that would simultaneously break the semi-feudal relations of the countryside through a peasant land revolution, and at the same time also overthrow the forces of imperialism that made national industrial development impossible. 
And it's exactly a process of this kind that did unfold in China. And so in this respect, Xie's ideas may be seen as a theorization at the level of political economy of the actual revolutionary process that went on to unfold. I want to emphasize in closing here that even while Xie was acutely concerned with the concrete dynamics of the agricultural question in China, his deployment of Marxist categories was also guided by a sense of the global. He was conscious, for example, that the maintenance of the small peasant economy in China as a semi-feudal, semi-colonial social relation was only one of the permutations that colonial agriculture could take. And that in Latin America, for example, Marxists would need to deal with the prevalence of plantation agriculture as the more dominant social form, a form that did in fact approximate wage labor, even whilst it continued to rely on varied forms of extra economic coercion to establish and maintain itself. Most importantly, however, by conducting comparisons between sites as geographically disparate as Latin America and Africa and China at this point, Schwer also understood the agrarian question and agrarian crisis as a global one and, and symptomatic of the destructive effects of the capitalist world system. It is also in this mode, as a global mode of dispossession, that the agricultural question emerges again today, specifically in the form of the problem of surplus labor. Many of us will be familiar with Mike Davis's work on this question, for example, which I think can be read in an interesting dialogue, these kinds of debates. For reasons of both historical importance and contemporary theoretical relevance, then, the legacies of Chinese political economy on the agrarian question should be retrieved. And I mean this, seeing as we're sitting here at HM, in the most concrete way it sense. In the way it also relates to practices of translation and the decisions as to what kinds of Marxist legacies are rendered legible or worthy of translation. After all, most people, at least in the US, cannot read these texts in the original, so it behooves to translation to try and render some sense of these debates as they took place in China. And yet, um, the, majing, the major publishing ventures of the Anglo-American left, who have already published so much in the way of translated primary documents on the classics of Soviet Marxism, have unfortunately ignored the rich legacies of Marxism elsewhere, especially in East Asia, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, to say nothing of Marxism in Africa and the Arab world. To the extent that the Marxist traditions in these countries are known, it is only in the form of a few proper names, Mao Zedong, which are then neatly or mechanically folded into analyses of Stalinism, rather than being the site of a concrete analysis. This needs to change. Chinese Marxists working on political economy in the 30s had much to say then, and I think they may also have things to say to us today. So I think we're moving on to... Yeah. Um, so, my paper will explore the implication of cinema and processes of primitive accumulation, um, specifically in Taiwan under Japanese colonial rule. So, cinema was introduced to Taiwan by Japanese colonialists at roughly the beginning of the occupation. Over the five decades of colonial rule, from 1895 to 1945, Japan administered Taiwan as its first overseas colony, a strategic base for southern expansion, and a source of wealth to support its own domestic development. This period saw the introduction and proliferation of cinema throughout the island. Regulated and controlled by the government general office, film was an integral aspect of the colonial government, of, of the colonial project. Government-affiliated organizations such as the Taiwan Education Society and the Motion Pictures Unit of the Taiwan Nichi Nichi Shinfo were instrumental in disse disseminating colonial ideology in the form of ed educational films which were exhibited in classroom and lecture screenings in both urban and remote areas. Moreover, film seems to have been particularly entangled with the administration's attempts to discipline and assimilate rebellious aboriginal populations in remote regions of the island. Indeed, one of the most prolific uh, producers of film during this period in Taiwan was the Motion Pictures Unit established by the Bureau of Aboriginal Affairs. In addition to making films for urban Taiwanese and domestic Japanese spectators, the Japanese administration also created agencies expressly dedicated to the production of educational films for Aboriginal audiences. Cinema's capacity for community, communicating across language barriers and its portability to remote mountain regions made it an ideal medium for disciplining and assimilating Aboriginals in a way that was not possible under the Qing. In this paper, I argue that the historical formations of cinema and Aboriginal dispossession were mutually intertwined throughout this period of Japanese rule in Taiwan. Specifically, I examined cinema's implication in two major socio-economic transformations, which were central to the process of dispossession, land expropriation and settlement mobilization. 
Cinema's enhanced visual perception facilitated land expropriation through its capacity to gather and organize information about the land, while its ability to propagate images of indigenous territory as an unoccupied wilderness justified annexation to an international audience. Furthermore, the role of cinema in mediating mass passions could contribute to indigenous dispossession by mobilizing settler migration to the colony. At the same time, it was the capital and resources obtained through the process of settler colonial extraction which made cinema as an enterprise possible. The transformations under Japan's settler colonization of Taiwan's aboriginal territories produced a category of people marked by their endangered relationship to the land and alleged incompatibility with modernity. Um, and cinema, which developed in response to the needs of colonization, emerged during this period as the technology of dispossession, which made these transformations possible. The counselor uh, in the Ministry of Civil Affairs of the Taiwan Governor General put it succinctly when he wrote in a position paper in 1902. From the point of view of the empire, there is only aboriginal land, but not an aboriginal people. Indeed, as many theorists and historians of settler colonialism have put it since, the indigenous problem is first and foremost an issue of land. What distinguishes settler colonization from colonization in its conventional form is a drive towards territorial annexa annexation with little use for its original inhabitants, resulting in what Patrick Wolfe terms a logics of elimination, which, elim which entails the violent eradication or assimilation of indigenous populations. As a prominent prominent theorist of Japan's policy for managing Taiwan's aboriginals, um, the uh, counselor in the Ministry of Civil Affairs of the Taiwan Governor General reasoned that since the Qing had never recognized the populations living beyond its savage borders as under its jurisdiction, having left them unaccounted for in the uh, peace treaty with Japan, international law did not grant any human rights to these stateless peoples. While in sociological terms, he argued, the raw savages who have not surrendered are human beings. They're analogous to animals from the perspective of international law. Thus, their lands could be expropriated with impunity. As demonstrated by the fact that they were unaccounted for in the Qing Empire's treaty with Japan, following China's defeat in the First Sino-Japanese War, aboriginals were never fully integrated under Qing jurisdiction. Rather, their territories, which lay at the borderlands of the empire, were largely administered ad hoc and it enjoyed a large degree of autonomy. This was due to the porousness of the Qing's dynastic sovereignty, which allowed for a plurality of communities to exist in different relationships to the administrative center. Sovereignty under the Qing was gradated, growing weaker at the peripheries of the empire, as there was no effort to maintain even, amount, even amounts of control over a territory bounded by fixed borders. However, Japanese imperial expansion, driven by competition with other capitalist states, necessitated a different form of sovereignty. As an expanding empire itself threatened by Western imperial encroachment, Japan needed to neutralize competing sources of authority and subjugate plural systems under a centralized state. After Taiwan's cession to Japan by the Qing in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, um, it aimed to homogenize the multiple and overlapping sovereignties of the island and institute a model of nation-state sovereignty over the whole surface of its newly acquired territory in order to facilitate defense, tax collection, conscription, and economic development. The need for such a comprehensive system of authority was due in part to the pressures of a competitive imperialism and international law. In the new international system, any land which lay outside the bounds of nation-state sovereignty were considered ownerless, regardless of whether or not there were humans already living there. In fact, in the international order, any peoples who lay outside the system of nation states were considered to be non-human and their lands available for lawful annexation. For Taiwan's original inhabitants, who were stateless, it was the encounter with Japan's need to consolidate territorial sovereignty, driven by imperialist comp competition, that set into motion the processes of dispossession, which tore them from their land and made them into today's indigenous people. As part of its project of establishing sovereignty over the island, Japan undertook a massive land inspection of Taiwan in the first two decades of colonial rule, producing hundreds of geographical survey films and photographs of its newly acquired territory, including many parts of the island which had been inaccessible to the less technologically advanced Qing Empire. The economist Ka Chi Ming writes of the inefficiency of the taxation system under the Qing, which left 
which left much land unregistered due to the inability of its administrators to account for remote or unfamiliar areas of the island. The Historia Emma Tang, in her study of the Qing's cartography of Taiwan, points out that for Qing officials, visibility or lack thereof was a persistent challenge to their ability to, ability to administer the distant island. Photography, then, was important for land expropriation because it rendered lands which had been invisible to the Qing visible to the Japanese. As Morris Lowe argues in his essay on Manchukuo, another one of Japan's colonial projects, photography helped authorize the colonization by authenticating the conditions in the colony, thereby providing an important tool for taking stock of Japan's informal empire. By making the colony visible, it became appropriable. Photography's visual perception, enhanced visual perception and capacity for collecting and organizing information about new territory was especially instrumental during the first two decades of Japanese rule in Taiwan, when the colonial administration, administration took massive, uh, undertook massive land surveys of the island, laying the foundations for industrial development, agriculture, and bringing in land that had been previ previously unaccounted for under the Qing into the taxation system. Um, Previously out of reach to the Qing, they were captured, first photographically, then militarily, and transformed into private property. Um, the, so I would like to analyze two photographs which were produced in the context of the colonial government's cadastral surveys and early military campaigns into the mountainous indigenous territories in order to understand the different aspects of photographic technology which, which facilitated land expropriation. The first photograph dates from 1912 and is captioned uh, bombardment by the advancing party uh, against the retiring Gaoguns from the top of Bombon Mountain. So we don't have um, any way to uh, display the photographs here, so you're just going to have to rely on my verbal descriptions. <laughs> so, um, so the photograph ostensibly depicts a group of Japanese soldiers on a military campaign against a tribe of mountain-dwelling aboriginals. Such campaigns constituted a significant portion of early Japanese activity in Taiwan, as the subjugation and removal of aboriginals were necessary in order to open up land they were dwelling on for colonial extra extraction. The photograph is a medium shot of uniform-clad soldiers gathered in a clearing during a moment of respite from combat. All except one gaze intently in the same direction, giving the impression that they are focusing on an enemy which lies just outside of the camera frame. Their figures are artfully arranged. The soldier at the rightmost side of the frame stands in a fully upright, uh, upright pose, while his compatriots hold various kneeling positions that descend in height towards the center of the frame. Their bodies create a sloping line that points, points in the same direction as their collective gaze, reinforcing the sense of concentration and awareness of danger. Such a heroic configuration evokes the compositional logics of um, roughly contemporaneous Japanese woodblock prints depicting scenes from the First Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War. However, more than just epitomizing um, the medium's uh, power to propagate attractive images of military adventurism, this photograph can tell us something about the status of the photography itself in the situation of a colonial war. As Paul Virilio notes, war is dependent on concealment and photography functions as a weapon of war by making visible that which is invisible to the human eye. The standing soldier on the right is not merely gazing off at a far-off enemy. He is gazing at the enemy through a pair of binoculars. As visual technologies with zoom capability, both the phot photographic camera and binoculars were instrumental in rendering discernible the distant and obscured. Indeed, accompanying this particular photograph in the same collection are several other photographs of Aboriginal camps taken from a distance. Although it is impossible to tell from the photos whether um, they were taken with a zoom lens, the use of binoculars in this photograph indicates that the Japanese military relied on visual technologies to enhance vis visibility of its indigenous enemy. Now, the second photograph I would like to examine also dates from 1912 and is captioned the training of Aboriginal youths in agriculture. Rather than depicting a scene from war, this photograph depicts a scene of ag agricultural production. It is framed as a landscape with the entire foreground taken up by what appears to be freshly cultivated rice paddies. Along the horizon line are tiny figures of human and cattle. During this decade, the colonial administration was preoccupied with not only annexing new territory, but in making its newly annexed land productive. 
This image then exemplifies photography's capacity to gather and organize information about the land in a way that lends itself to capitalist rationality and its role in transforming human relationships to the land. As previously discussed, under the Qing, um, land in remote regions of Taiwan, especially those inhabited by aboriginals, resisted incorporation into the registration and tax system, taxation system due to in, its inaccessibility. However, facilitated by photography's portability, instantaneous, instantaneousness, and capacity to index the material world in scientific detail, the Japanese military was able to overcome many such challenges of accessibility. If making the land productive entailed the standardization of an irregular and organic geography, then this image exemplifies how photography aided the process by casting the landscape in linear perspective, capturing the modularity of the rice paddies. The land is transformed into repetitive units of interchangeability, and the human and animal figures are insignificant in the face of this totalizing object. Um, so the legal justification for Japan's annexation of indigenous lands was the doctrine in international law known as terra nullius, or as referred to in the Japanese literature, mujinchi. A paradoxical term, terra nullius denoted land that was either unoccupied and therefore the taking, or land inhabited by those so primitive they could be considered part of the landscape. The issue of Japan's entanglement with terra nullius in the juridical sense is a topic beyond the scope of this paper, since it is made complex by the fact that Japan was given ownership of Taiwan as part of a treaty with the Qing Empire. However, the fact remains that the trope of an ownerless or savage land had a strong grip on the colonial ima imagination. Cinema, as a medium which could disseminate images across language boundaries and on a mass scale, was instrumental in propagating to the international community images of pristine and trans transcendent wilderness in Japan's colonies. The 1907 film Introduction to Actual Conditions in Taiwan is reported to be the first feature-length documentary made in Taiwan. Shot in hundreds of locales around the island, the film was shown to domestic inter and international audiences at the Taiwan Hall of the Ta Tokyo Expo that same year. It boasted of the success of Japan's colonial project with scenes of modern infrastructure, production, and natural beauty. In one of the many episodes featuring Taiwan's natural splendor, the film introduces the spectator to Taroka Gorge, located in the mountainous eastern shore of Taiwan. The sequence begins with a phantom vehicle shot as the camera moves at a high speed along a twisting mountain road. Moving at breakneck pace down the paved road, the vehicle turns a corner and enters a tunnel, and the camera frame fills with darkness. Then the film cuts to a downward panning shot of, of a dramatic mountain gorge suffused with light. The narrator explains, passing through the tunnel from the right bank of the Liru River, one can see the towering marble cliffs. It is as if, having passed through the tunnel, we transition from a world of forward momentum and modernized infrastructure to a space which lies outside of modern time. The visual vocabulary also undergoes a transition, with a jerky and dynamic phantom ride being replaced with magisterial panning shots and long takes. The narrator continues, with the breathtaking beauty of canons, canyons and cliffs, and with its neighboring tall mountains, the Taroko Gorge is a wonder in both East Asia and the world. The camera pans lazily upwards, contemplating the twisting grooves of the mountain face. Paired with a soundtrack that recalls an angelic church choir, the sequence is one of quasi-spiritual mystique. None of the shots feature a single human being. What the narrator does not mention, however, is that the t at the time the film was made, Taroka Gorge was home to a, um, the Truku Aboriginal tribe. In fact, the name Taroko was derived from a Truku word meaning human being, which comes as an ironic counterpoint to the fact that in the colonial imaginary, they have been rendered insubstantial and non-human. Furthermore, the Truku tribe would eventually be massacred with their remaining population moved to reservations in the south of Taiwan. Thus, while Taroko Gorge is very much a lived landscape in which Aboriginals fought to defend against military campaigns that sought to displace them from their home. The narrative logics of Terra Nullius presented it to international audiences as a transcendent wilderness for spiritual contemplation. So um, now I'm just going to conclude. Um, so, sorry, let me just find my.
Um, in this paper, I have examined the role of cinema and photography as a technology of dispossession in the five decades of Japanese colonial rule over Taiwan. However, this paper is still very much a work in progress. Um, in the process of writing, there were major findings which raised new and pressing questions. Um, for example, the first of these findings has to do with the relationship of the raw material, um, camphor, which the Japanese um, uh, which the Japanese harvested and exported during um, the colonial period. And um, its relationship to filmmaking uh, became very important um, after I learned that in the second decade of occupation, the colonial administration began aggressively pushing into the Taiwanese mountains where many Aboriginal tribes dwelled for the goal of ex extracting camphor from the dense forests. Um, at the same time, camphor was also an important commodity worldwide, and the colonial administration sought to recuperate financial losses from its first decade of administering Taiwan by selling Taiwanese camphor on the world market. At around the same time, a process was invented for using camphor to manufacture celluloid, and until the 1950s, when it was replaced by acetate, celluloid was the primary component of film stock. Thus, the resource obtained through settler colonial extraction which necessitated the violent seizure of indigenous lands, was indis indispensable to the material production of film. More, more than just existing as an autonomous technology, which was used to film and as assimilate Aboriginal populations, film owed in part its historical formation to the very processes of indigenous dispossession. Furthermore, as Japan had the world monopoly on camphor at the time, the only competitor to Taiwanese camphor being Japan's own domestic supply, this connection may have major ramifications for our understanding of the relationship of early cinema to colonialism and primitive accumul accumulation. Um, the other uh, find I had was that in 1907, an American general consul to Taiwan named James Wright Davidson uh, gave documents to the Taiwanese governor general pertaining to the construction of the United States Native American Re Reservation System. According to an account in his own book, The Island of Formosa, Past and Present, which also happens to be the first English language historiography of Taiwan, the Japanese colonial government then used the American model as a template in constructing their own system of spatially administered Aboriginal territories. This account is also sub substantiated in some Japanese scholarship, as well as in the work of Scott Simon, one of the few scholars writing in English who um, addressed the question of primitive accumulation in Taiwan. Given the fact that indigenous peoples in both the United States and Taiwan remain under conditions of settler colonialism, subjected to abject poverty, environmental de degradation brought about by the extractive industries, and sex trafficking on the res same reservation they had been displaced to in the 19th and 20th centuries, an inquiry into historical exchanges between settler colonial states may yield crucial insights into the present. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much to um, Ben and Tiffany for inviting me to join this panel and all of the organizing work that has been done by the folks at Jacobin and historical materialism. Um, this is really, really a pleasure. Um, uh, it's interesting because Ben has spoken about um, sort of the, the idea and the prospects of, a, of an agrarian uh, revolution in, in China historically. And Tiffany also touched on, to a large degree, on the, the work of media in, um, not in agrarian revolution, but really in an imperialist project, which is of great interest to me because precisely part of what China's revolution was against was the Japanese imperial ex expansion into uh, northeastern China. So these things all kind of gel together. But I'll be coming at this from the perspective of literature. And um, just because I don't have any kind of visual aid um, for point of reference, I'll very briefly uh, write the, the, the author. I'll be speaking really about one author uh, today, um, who is uh, Zhao Shuli, um, is his name. 
uh, and his uh, writing. Um, very compelling feature of the early 1950s in China is um, that not only were people writing about the revolutionary process, the ongoing transformation of the countryside, but that they were doing it actively and writing about it as they were doing it. So this is a paper that attempts to engage with some of this writing and some of this history, not as a uh, reflection of, but or, or an engagement with, but an active source of theoretical thinking. Now, what would a transition to socialism look like? For Chinese author and activist Zhao Shuli in the early 1950s, this was not merely an abstract question. In the years immediately following the establishment of the PRC in 1949, Zhao was actively engaged in various political and artistic projects to help realize the fledgling PRC's socialist aspirations, dividing his efforts between the city, uh, Beijing, and uh, the countryside, several villages notably in Shanxi province. In Beijing, Zhao assumed several editorial and bureaucratic responsibilities in line with projects to develop new institutions for a socialist culture. I won't say much about that today. Rather, I'd like to talk about his excursions to southern Shanxi province, where Zhao found himself involved in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of an agrarian transition to socialism, or an attempted agrarian transition to socialism. Yet at the same time that Zhao was aiding villages to develop new forms of accounting, new forms of labor organization, etc., he was also compiling observations and critiques of these village transformations, which would find themselves into several fictional works which he published during this period. Uh, most famously, his novel about building a village cooperative, uh, Sanliwan, uh, Sanliwan Village. Today, I propose to follow certain traces of Zhao's creative practice from this period as resources for thinking about the question of socialist transition. Via Zhao's work, I would suggest that the problem we face today is not only how to construct a socialism in our time, but how to co-construct a time for socialism. So, in part one, I will broadly lay out how I understand Zhao's engagement with the agrarian question in terms of temporality. Zhao's fiction drew from the resources of historical transformations underway to seek out a temporality for mass production, which could act as a guidepost on a road to socialism, as he understood it. In part two, I will look more closely at how Zhao imagined these guideposts via models, labor models, village models. These things sound very unsexy maybe, but at that time, they were ways to orient society toward a new co-constructed time for socialism, for socialist production. And in the third and final part, I'll return to Zhao's novels as a site for thinking the problem of temporal synchronization within the scope of a socialist transitional project, first and foremost as a social problem. Synchronizing society within a new socialist time was not strictly about uh, realizing a certain arrangement uh, of production. It was a question of persuasion, of persuading society to orient itself en masse toward a socialist horizon. So part one. From 1952 to 1955, Zhao Shuli composed three fictional pieces which touch upon the construction of irrigation canals in agrarian communities. The short story, Praying for Rain, Chiu Yu, the novel, Sanliwan Village, and the younger theater script, as kind of a folk art, if you want, uh, called Digging a Canal, Kaichu. These pieces were all composed in the midst of Zhao's activist work at experimental villages in Shanxi, which were early sites for a new national program to transition agrarian organization for mutual aid. Sorry, this part gets a little uh, technical, but this was part of a transition of agrarian organization from mutual aid teams in which private landowners pool their resources in order to share planting and harvesting duties to agrarian cooperatives. Zhao's fiction from this period examines the initial form of the agrarian cooperative at that time, which basically means a mutual aid team voluntarily surrendered its, private ownership, its members' private ownership of land to constitute a collectively farmed plot. 
So in broad terms, cooperatives were thus intended to advance agrarian communities in China a step further toward the elimination of capitalist forms of private ownership. In addition, such cooperative forms of labor organization were advocated for because they allowed for this mass mobilization of labor and other resources necessary to realize major infrastructure projects in agrarian communities, no, namely, in this case, uh, irrigation canals. Um, so in Zhao Shuli's fiction, the problems with this project of transforming China's social world are presented as a confrontation between uneven temporalities. So for example, the short story Praying for Rain stages established rhythms of life within an agrarian community against the proposal to establish an irrigation canal. As the narrator of this story explains at the beginning, life in this village during previous decades has been rhythmed by frequent dry spells such that it has become a near annual practice for villagers to assemble at a temple and pray for rain. The various rituals aimed at soliciting divine intervention are described by the narrator in careful detail, as well as how the local landlord had formerly used those rituals and the droughts to extort land from fellow villagers. Yet, the narrator informs us, the village recently underwent land redistribution, so that landlord's accumulated land was all broken up. I mean, this is in a fictional piece, but it is reflecting a very uh, contemporary uh, historical reality in China in the early 50s. So now, the party branch secretary who lives in that village, Yu Changchui, proposes to resolve the problem of drought, this annual problem, by building an irrigation canal. Racing to counter the effects of a new drought which is onsetting in the story, Yu plans to, um, leads a plan to complete the canal within 20 days. So this kind of planning in Zhao Shuli is very meticulous and always very important. So they give themselves 20 days. I won't get into the details of this story too much, but just to summarize, a standoff ensues between Yu's labor team and a group of village elders. Interestingly, several of them had been formerly poor peasants who benefited from the land reform. Uh, the elders um, uh, uh, occupy the local temple and begin ringing the temple bells to constantly sound the call for prayer to the temple deity, uh, Long Wang. Uh, this Long Wang is a, is a very classic figure in these debates over water and um, rain and agriculture at the time. Um, so, I don't need to get into too many details here. Practical problems lead to delays in canal construction. Combined with the incessant din from the temple bells, villagers increasingly abandon construction and return to praying in the temple. Zhao's prose crafts this conflict through a clash between the regular rhythmed workdays of construction and the disruptive bells and gongs of the temple. Ritual, so it's kind of the opposite of the, the, the pieces where you have the, 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 the bells coming in to organize the workday, which you, you see a lot in this period. Ritual practices and socialist construction are posed here as two different temporal logics in which the latter, socialist construction, poses a temporally delineated plan for permanently eradicating the conditions of drought. Suffice it to say that this is the temporality of planning oriented toward a future of change, which ultimately succeeds in the story and yielding practical results. The canal is completed, and the story ends with this really comedic scene in which each of the village elders hunkered down in the temple, um, hearing the, 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 the news of the canal, uh, politely uh, excuse themselves before the temple god and say, I'm sorry, now that there's water, I really have to go and tend to my crops. So this is a very simple and on its face clear short story and illustrates for our purposes today how planning and practical results are integral to Zhao Shuli's own formulation of a socialist oriented mode of temporality. Further, the story integrates this temporality as one of synchronized production. When the canal is successfully built at the story's conclusion, the villagers gather around it and make this big cacophony. Um, it is this sound, this social world erupting around the realization of a new cooperative form of planning, which then draws the elders one by one out of the temple where they had been hunkered down back to tend their crops. Thus, the realization of the agrarian qua planned economic form is evoked here through the lure of a new social form, rhythmed by a shared temporal logic of production. 
While these points are only impressionistically evoked in Zhao's short story, they are much more fully developed in his long novel, San Liwan Village. Um, Zhao surely uh, drafted the bulk of this novel over two months in 1953, following a series of excursions to Chuandi village in the south of Shanxi. A central question posed by the novel was one being worked through during the actual political struggles of the time. By what processes should agrarian cooperatives be formed? Similar to Praying for Rain, the short story, a main narrative thread of San Liwan is a debate over the construction of an irrigation canal. Yet the ideological contours of the canal question are quite distinct here. In the novel San Liwan, the canal is opposed by those who fear that the expansion of an agrarian cooperative necessary for the canal's construction would threaten their private economic activities. Chief amongst the antagonists to the canal in the novel is the character of Fan Deng Kao, a local member of the Communist Party who had instrumentalized the land reform in the village to his own benefit. Fan opposes the proposal to pool his especially productive land into this shared cooperative. So given these elements, it's easy to understand how the novel is frequently framed as this ideological conflict about Uh, those striving to go down a socialist road versus the uh, capitalist roaders. Yet Zhao's analysis of this conflict is also cast in precise temporal terms in which the socialist path promises new forms of mass synchronization as opposed to forms of increasing fragmentation. Um, by way of example, I'm not going to go into this, but there, uh, fan, uh, the, the communist um, cadre has all of these side businesses, including a very lucrative one uh, selling underwear, um, woolen underwear, which he purchases at a local village. And I, I won't go into too many details, but basically what happens is he has this supply chain that gets disrupted by the rhythms of agrarian harvests. And it turns into this clash between should uh, resources be given to the, the community's harvests or should he keep on funneling them out to his side business. Um, I can't get much more in-depth with this. Suffice it to say, though, that Zhao Shuli's novel by no means imagines that China's agrarian world is insulated from capitalist development and indeed, more interesting, locates the possibilities for development of capitalism in his novel amongst the communist cadres who carried out and benefited from communist land reforms. How then could society take the socialist road that Zhao uh, speaks of, even when those who claim to be communists abuse their position for private gains? Well, for Zhao Shuli, part of the answer was to search for models. So in part two, within the novel San Liwan, the titular village holds the status of a model agrarian cooperative. One of its young female protagonists, Yumei, has also been elected, incidentally, as a model of her local youth league. Models, be they labor models, production models, hygiene models, were an important part of the socialist uh, tradition regularly featured within Zhao Shuli's writings. It's perhaps no coincidence that the Shanxi village, which served as the basis for Zhao's fiction, was also a model where Zhao became acquainted with the local leader, a model worker, Guo Yuan. While Zhao was in Chuandi village in 1952, in fact, Zhao Shuli drafted a, a short unpublished article, which was a, a biography of this, historically, um, this historical figure, this model worker named Guo. Guo, a local member of the Communist Party, since 1943, had led Chuandi's village's mutual aid team and cooperative movements. Then, in 1952, Guo was named a labor hero by a regional labor hero conference. So Zhao's biography concludes by attributing Guo's success to four special capacities of this individual, two of which emphasize his social skills, I'll come back to those, and two, his relation to the temporality of production. And so I'd like to focus on these last two as they highlight a key element of this argument, namely that Zhao Shuli's engagement with models pose them as signposts towards a new temporal logic of socialism. First, Zhao commends Guo's facility for planning. 
And he, just a brief quote, each year has its annual plan, each season has its seasonal plan, such that each small phase is thought through step by step in order to prevent work from becoming disjointed, quote. This is how Zhao understands, I mean, it's kind of evident, okay. Uh, secondly, though, Zhao also affirms Guo's ability to quickly take in new things. In Zhao's judgment, Guo's speed in establishing a co-op, adopting new production techniques and farming equipment, etc., all correspond to a need for fast movement. There's a sense reinforced in the narrative praying for rain, in fact, that delays in practical projects could lead to the abandonment of socialist development. And in this sense, I propose that socialist models, the labor heroes, cultural worker heroes, etc., etc., were gestures towards a new, synchronized, accelerated project of mass production necessary for the socialist project. Now, at this juncture, one could object. Um, this is a really banal argument. If we look at the history of um, socialism in the 20th century, how is the kind of model that I'm talking about here any different from the Stakhanovite sort of Soviet um, 1930s labor model? Is Zhao Shuli's emphasis on acceleration really so different or important? Uh, from our present standpoint, in an era of looming ecological devastation, should we not proceed with caution in our approach to campaigns of mass development, acceleration, etc., etc.? So, against such objections, Zhao Shuli, I think, comes with a very interesting answer, and that is that he rigorously situates these questions of planning and speed as social questions. For example, in the biography of the model worker Guo, whom I just mentioned, uh, there, I mentioned there were two social characteristics, and those were one, Guo's capacity to analyze the thinking of his fellow peasants, and two, his facility to patiently persuade them and never lose his temper. Zhao Shuli loves to craft these fictional scenes in which very serious communists lose their temper with peasants and tell them that they're, they're uh, taking the Chiang Kai-shek road and things like that. And uh, these are not good qualities for Zhao Shuli. Uh, uh, for Zhao Shuli, a socialist model is not only an incarnation of some kind of superhuman Stakhanovite productivity, but such a model exists in their social context as a persuasive force for the rest of society. And I'd insist that the kind of model persuasion Zhao Shuli is interested in is quite unlike this superhuman producer, which is conventionally associated with critiques of the Stakhanovite labor model. I'm not going to get deeply into that, uh, but you, you all probably have a sense of what I mean. So to clarify the kinds of persuasion being thought through in Zhao Shuli's work, I'd like to finish by returning briefly to the novel San Li Wan. So part three. In one of the most critically beloved sections of Sandy One, a painter visits the village and is asked by inhabitants to create two new paintings, one entitled Sandy One Tomorrow, follow, which is to integrate in its painting this presentation of what the new canal could look like. And secondly, a painting t entitled Socialist Sandy One, depicting a fully industrialized agrarian future for the village. In the novel, local party members request these paintings in the context of their own mobilization campaigns for the canal's construction, implicating the role of cultural practice in thinking future possibilities which are imminent within their current conditions. On this point, the fear of rashly presenting villagers with a vision of industrialized agrarian development, the socialist Sandy Juan, is raised by a party member. The village secretary explains that they must be cautious in how they present the village's socialist future because, quote, we shouldn't make it sound too easy. Otherwise, hasty folk may join the co-op today and demand telephones and electricity tomorrow, quote. When the finished paintings are then unveiled, villagers respond enthusiastically to this canal in San Liwan tomorrow, but the picture of socialist Sandy Wan sparks increased debate over whether this ambitious vision would even be practical. To briefly conclude, I propose that Zhao Shuli's three, two paintings here suggest a temporality for models like Sandy Wan Village that does not privilege strict 
acceleration of production above all else. The transition to socialism, the synchronization of extant social forms into a new logic of mass production must happen urgently, yes, but at a rhythm which is grounded in the social realities of the community. In this regard, artists like the painter Liang in this novel, or indeed the novelist Zhao Shuli himself, crafted models of socialist transition as a means of constructing from their lived conditions new forms of socialist desire, and desire which could be attained by anyone, not just a superhuman Stakhanovite. Taking the road to socialism was not, therefore, merely a means of establishing a new political economic form of mass production, however necessary that would be. It was to engage adequately with the communities of people who would potentially live in and, in fact, build this new synchronized social form and craft means of persuasion so that they could build it together. So to conclude, Zhao Shuli's engagement with the agrarian question as one of socialist transition poses some interesting problems today. If we are to seek out a socialism in our time, then we must also ask, which is our time? Which time? The persistence of the agrarian question and the uneven forms of political development and economic development and social organization that the agrarian question implicates also indicate an ongoing problem of multiple temporalities in our present. When we say socialism in our time, which of the many possible times in our extant world are we talking about? Yet I think that it would be unfair to Zhao Shuli to leave you with the impression that socialism in his mind was simply a challenge of synchronizing. The challenge of socialism as his novel presents it via models, certain arts of persuasion, was not simply to pull everyone into the same time, but to forge a new sense of time together. Thus, in the spirit of Zhao Shuli, the problem we face is not only how to construct socialism in our time, but how to co-construct a time for socialism. In this sense, the agrarian question remains as a question, a problem, and perhaps an opportunity that does not go away.